Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. 20 years ago, Manchester City nearly failed in their attempt to get out of the third tier of English football. Today's Blue Moon Podcast is a special edition which looks at how the club saved themselves from the lowest point in their history. Having made the playoffs that year, they were 2-0 down going into stoppage time of the final game with Gilligan at Wembley. Late goals from Kevin Hollock and Paul Dickoff drag City level before they went on to win 3-1 on penalties. It remains one of the most iconic and important matches in the club's history and without it, who knows where they'd be today. In this show, David Mooney has spoken to all of the key figures of that match to get the story of how the club turned its fortunes around and how it got itself into such a big mess in the first place. I was looking at that giant scoreboard at Wembley, Manchester City nil, Gillingham 2, and thinking to myself, what the hell are we going to do? I remember crouching down in, in my hands and knees thinking we're blowing it um, but I can honestly say that I can't I didn't actually know how long was left When the second goal went in I turned to Willie Donachy and said uh, it looks like Scunny next season you know, and, and Scunthorpe had just won the playoff the day before I still didn't think that was enough on a personal point and I know it sounds dreadfully selfish but I thought oh, we've had a terrible day but I've scored at Wembley um, and I tell the grandkids that. One of the biggest sliding doors moments in Manchester City's entire history happened at Wembley in May 1999. After a long season in the third tier of English football, the first and so far only time the club had sunk to that level, it had looked like they were going to miss out on promotion. Going up automatically had slipped away from them after a terrible start to the campaign. A third place finish meant they were favourites for the playoffs, but in the 90th minute of the final against Gillingham they were losing 2-0. The fans were flocking to the exits. What had once been one of the country's top clubs was in a mess and the situation looked hopeless. There was nothing for supporters to get behind, nothing to make them believe that things would ever change. Years of mismanagement at all levels had taken their toll and the future looked bleak. But then this happened. Well, it's not over till the final whistle, and City here looking for an opening. It's Dick off again! Can you believe it? Denied once by his best man, but this time Dick off comes out on top, and from 2 0 down, Manchester City have drawn in level. It's difficult to say what would have happened to City without that goal and without Kevin Holock's strike minutes earlier but it's probably fair to say that they wouldn't be anywhere near where they are now. This is the story of the Manchester City side that came back from the brink of oblivion.
the early 1990s had been looking good for City. After promotion back to the top flight in 1989, things seemed to be heading in the right direction. Two fifth-place finishes under player manager Peter Reid were cause for optimism, though they slipped to ninth in the first-ever Premier League campaign. Reid explains how things behind the scenes weren't as smooth as they might have been. I had problems with the chairman about... Uh, I think he went into Manchester City even use, if you look back, and said he had six million to spend, and uh, it wasn't forthcoming. So I obviously, as a young manager and a bit hot-headed, wasn't happy with that. And there was, there was unrest, yeah. Circumstances happened where me and Mr. The, the then chairman, Mr. Swales, fell out, and uh, if you fall out with the chairman, there's only one answer. Chairman Peter Swales brought in John Maddock, a heavyweight in the newspaper industry, as general manager, and Reid felt it undermined his authority. He explains he and Mr Maddock didn't see eye to eye. I wasn't overly keen on the situation um, and we had a couple of discussions about football which I didn't agree with him and, and it made me, me feelings known and um, he asked me to get rid of me number two and, and I said well am I the manager or you? So that was a bit of discontent and I let me feel as known and I was gone after four games. It signalled the start of a period of turmoil at Main Road. After Reid's sacking, Brian Horton was appointed as boss, but fans were underwhelmed, having been hoping for a bigger name. The football was entertaining, but the results were erratic. It meant in Horton's two seasons, City finished 16th and 17th out of 22 teams. Behind the scenes, there was unrest in the boardroom, and it finished with Francis Lee ousting Peter Swales as chairman in February 1994. Horton suspects that's one of the reasons why he was sacked just over a year later. We were never in relegation trouble, so I don't, need, I don't want to hear that word really because we weren't. It looked poor in the end and we'd been better than that because I think at Christmas we were sixth in the league and um, obviously with the chairman that was in, uh, he knew I was going so he wouldn't give me any more money to buy, buy players. So you can sense it, you, you, you know, I mean I've been in football long enough to know when things like that are going to happen and and chairman won't give you any more money to buy players, then, you know, it's uh, it's inevitable. Francis Lee appointed his own man for the beginning of the next season, but Alan Ball wasn't able to recreate the impact he'd had in charge of Southampton, and after 11 games, City had just two points. They were relegated on the final day after a 2-2 draw with Liverpool. After three games of the 1996-97 season, Ball resigned, and things turned to farce. There were five managers in the main road dugout in the first five months of the campaign, as caretakers Asa Hartford and Phil Neal filled in either side of Steve Coppel's now infamous 33 days in charge. By December, Frank Clark had the job of getting City promoted at the first attempt. The team were inconsistent and could only achieve a mid-table finish, ending the campaign in 14th. They were closer to the bottom three than the promotion places. The following year, the bookies again had City favourites to win the league, but they must have seen something the fans didn't. By the end of February 1998, they were two points off the bottom of the table. Clark was sacked, and as one of Francis Lee's final acts as chairman before he resigned, he appointed Joe Royal as manager. He explains what it was like when he arrived at Main Road. It was muddled. It, it, it was a club in turmoil, too many players, too many players that shouldn't be there, really. I think what had happened, they'd had a succession of managers who'd all brought players in but hadn't been able or wanted to sort of get rid of players. and. We had 50-plus pros when I got there and sort of players that time had forgotten. And uh, first deadline day was spent in the boardroom just letting players out on loan or freeze just to reduce the wage bill. I mean, we were financially bereft, it's no secret. Royal had developed a reputation as a manager who could bring stability when it was badly needed. 
a fan's favourite as a player for City in the 1970s, he brought with him an ex-teammate and someone he'd worked with at Oldham and Everton in the shape of his assistant, Willie Donachie. The Scots explained what had changed at Main Road from when he left in 1980 and when he returned in 1998. There were so many things. Uh, it was unbelievable, really, because they'd, they'd been through a few managers, a few managers had been sacked, and there was 54 professionals. The first couple of days, we just played two games, 11 v 11, then another 11 v 11, to try and see the players we had. There was that many, and some players who had big reputations weren't really performing. The club was facing a very uncertain future. Royal explains that was the reason why the board originally offered him a short-term deal. When I had uh, signed the contract there, you know, they, they didn't know that the board didn't know who was going to be in charge come the new season. Um, whether they were going to still be there or, or whatever, or whether the club was going to go into liquidation. You know, things were, were that tight and they offered me uh, a contract till the end of the season. And I said, well, I said, I have no problem with it personally, you know, but I said, I don't think it's what the fans want to hear. So I think the best thing is if you tell me I've got a three-year contract, but we have a clause in it whereby either party can get out at the end of the season. And after Francis Lee's resignation from the board, financial director David Bernstein was appointed to replace him as chairman. He says City were in a state when he took charge. The club was pretty much in the 19th century at the time. It was way behind where it needed to be. The stadium, of course, itself, Main Road, was a stadium that I loved greatly, but was uh, in a pretty poor state. We didn't have a really a proper training ground. Um, we, we had a training ground in, in Moss Side. We didn't have a store, to, uh, a shop, a store of any size. I mean, it was like a postage stamp thing. Our offices were a house in Moss Side. We didn't have really proper offices. And, um, you know, the, the, the club had been allowed to just uh, fall behind the times. Bernstein and Royal were trying to give the club some stability off the pitch, but on it, City were struggling in their attempt to stay in the second tier. A 2-2 draw at Main Road with QPR in the second-to-last game of the season didn't help matters. It left the away side safe and City in deep trouble. With one game to play, they were second bottom. Above them by a point was Stoke, who were their opponents for the afternoon. A win for either and good results elsewhere would be enough to stay up, and City held their end of the deal and got the victory. Despite that 5-2 scoreline though, they still went down. The two sides they could have caught, Port Vale and Portsmouth, were both winning comfortably as well. Royal says it was another aspect of typical City. The first job really was trying to avoid relegation, which we narrowly missed, and again in true City style, we had to win last game of the season and you know, one or two results had to go for us and everything went against us. But then the sorting house had to be done, you know, the whole thing needed trimming, uh, economising and starting again. That summer left everybody wondering what was to come next. Having endured two relegations in three seasons, there was a toxic atmosphere around Main Road and the future of the club was uncertain. Willie Donachie says he was trying to focus on getting the team to perform. It was uncertain, but I've never been like that. I've never felt like that. I've never got involved in the politics of a club. I just try and deal with the players. That's why I loved working with George. Joe was great with the board, the fans, the media. With that relegation, City were competing in the third tier of English football for the first time in their history. Speaking with the benefit of hindsight, the chairman believes it was actually a blessing in disguise. It gave us a chance to really 
revolutionised the club, and that's, you know, that's not too strong a word. The day after we got relegated, I did a two-page spread in the Manchester Evening News, setting out my strategy for the future, you know, around youth development, around all sorts of things. And I, I think something that I believe gave the fans uh, some encouragement, at least somebody was looking at the thing, and uh, there, was, <laughs> there was some positiveness ahead in spite of this very difficult situation. This time, nearly everybody expected City to be close to the top of the table. A fresh start was needed and it felt like a brand new era was underway with a 3-0 win over Blackpool on the opening day of the season. But the fans were brought crashing back down to earth with a bump pretty quickly. A defeat at Fulham was followed up by draws with Wrexham and Notts County and after four games City were in 14th position in the league. In their history they've never been lower in the football pyramid. Results didn't improve. By the end of December a defeat to York meant City had won only seven of their first 22 games. They were 12th heading into the Christmas period, and promotion looked a long way off. Midfielder Michael Brown remembers how desperate it was looking. We went to Wrexham and we were still only 12th at this point, and it was Boxing Day, and I think um, I was struggling with a heavy cold, I was dying, and we were terrible we were, but we managed to nick it 1-0. Only years later did I find out that Joe Royal was going to be sacked after the end of that game. You know, I found out that it looked like was, you know, the board were going to sack him, but we, we nicked through. And the rest was history. The chairman, though, says Royal's position was never in danger despite a poor start to the season. First of all, the rumours are completely untrue. Uh, we had great confidence in, in Joe Royal. Uh, we seem to be, well, it was one of those situations we seem to be doing all the right things. We signed some, some, some good players. Uh, we were appearing to do everything right, and yet the results weren't coming through at the time. And I think it was on Boxing Day that we played a match at Main Road, and I'm not sure, but it may have been against Stoke again. And I remember we were 1-0 down at half-time and it was all looking pretty desperate. And I think there was a big barley in the dressing room at half-time, as I understand it. I mean, I wasn't there. And we came out and we won that game and then we never looked back after that. That game against Stoke was actually two days after the match with Wrexham on Boxing Day. That win at the racecourse ground was the key to turning City's fortunes on their head. There were only two more defeats in the rest of the campaign and they made a push for the second automatic promotion spot behind runaway leaders Fulham. Midfielder Kevin Horlock explains. I think it was a way to, was it a way to Wrexham or Wrexham, I think it was, Boxing Day. I think I, I took a corner and Gerard Viking scored. And then from that day we went on just a mad run of winning games and it did look like we were going to sneak in and we didn't. Defender Richard Edgell says he remembers the team didn't play very well, but they were able to dig in and win the match. I remember sitting in the dressing room after the Wrexham game and Kevin Horlock sat next to me saying to me, that's probably the worst performance I've ever seen by any professional player and I think I, I did have a bad game. But I think the lads sat there and we all sat there and realised that we, we did have a chance of maybe getting automatic and we just had to keep going. Next up was that game with Stoke, which David Bernstein thought was vital to the turnaround in the season. The Paul Dickoff equaliser after half-time paved the way for Gareth Taylor to head in the winner with just five minutes left to play. The goal seemed to inject some confidence into the squad. It was Taylor's first for the club and he remembers it well. It was a big game because they were going for it as well that season. And I'd, I'd had a goal disallowed just before I scored, actually, which was a disappointment. But um, now I remember I was actually someone showed it to me on a video the other day, and it was Dicky who's gone down the left side, cut back in, put a great cross in, and I've got my first goal, which was which is a fantastic feeling. Meanwhile, Joe Royal believes one signing they made was crucial in changing the mentality at Main Road. When Morrison came, although there wasn't an immediate uh, renaissance, as it were, you know, certainly Andy's influence when he wasn't playing was still felt, you know, Andy, and Andy, in, in the nicest terms, and I, and I don't mean this respectfully, Andy was a, a bit of a bully, which was what the club needed. 
No, we, we signed Andy Morrison, the personality and the captain, as much as the player. With the squad coming together over the Christmas period and with City climbing up the table, it turned out that second place was slightly too much to ask. Despite the title-winning form of the second half of the season, a late wobble at the start of May left City unable to gain automatic promotion. They finished third, and they were into the playoffs facing Wigan. They couldn't have got off to a worse start. They were 1-0 down inside the first minute thanks to a mix-up between defender Gerard Vikings and goalkeeper Nicky Weaver. The goalkeeper explains what happened. The ball, the ball got come back and I've shouted, I, I wanted to clear it, so I shouted like keepers to Gerard Vikings. I wanted to clear it. But then I thought he shaped like he was going to clear it. So I've backed off thinking he was going to take matters into his own hands and clear it, which would have been fine. He sort of like stepped over it, and by this time I'd stepped back, and I think it was Stuart Barlow, if my memory serves me, who just nipped in and put it in, that was after something like 20 seconds. Gerard Vikins says he was trying to dummy the ball, but he didn't expect to catch out his own goalkeeper as well. Lee Crooks, he, uh, he, he did a throw, a throw he threw in and he, uh, he threw it to me, but the ball was very fast, and, and uh, the striker was coming, so I pretended it just kick it up upfield, but uh, I thought it's it's the ball's quick enough to uh, to go to the keeper, so Nicky can pick the ball up and we, we keep possession. But uh, he also uh, thought I was 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 kicking the ball long, so he he went backwards, and the striker was it Barlow. He uh, he caught the ball and he uh, he scored. In the end, it finished 1-1. Paul Dickoff equalised deep into the second half, and that goal was the last ever at Springfield Park. The centre-forward explains that Vikings was one of the first over to congratulate him. Gerard didn't have to thank me or apologise because he was outstanding that season. Um, and it was a really uncharacteristic mistake from him. You know, and obviously we, we got back in it. We're probably unlucky not to win the game. And then going back to Main Road, it was a really nervy night. You know, the, the fans, the players, everybody in, in Wigan actually played probably with the better team. Um, and the GOAT does what the goat does and shank one in. City won the second leg 1-0 but there was controversy over the goal. When it crossed the line there was confusion over whether it would stand. It might have been handball by Sean Gota. In the end the referee allowed it and the home side won the game. But was it actually handball? There's only one man who can say for sure, the goat himself. No, no it wasn't. Um, and and there's, no, there's no need for me to, to sit here today and, and, and lie about it. But no, I mean the ball's come across and I've dipped because I've dipped my shoulder, um, but it's, it's clearly hit my on my chest and, and it's going in. Gota says he also had a chance encounter with the referee from that match years later, back when he was in his home country. The referee that ref that game, in fact, he, he uh, worked in Bermuda, um, or works in Bermuda now, and he actually um, bumped into me. I was uh, with some friends and... And he had asked me, he said, so tell me, Sean, was that a handball? I said, of course it was no handball. But it was funny because I'm sitting there thinking, you're asking me all these years later. And he actually asked me immediately after as well. And I said to him, no, it wasn't. That goal was enough for City to go through to the playoff final at Wembley. In the other semi-final, Gillingham had beaten Preston North End, meaning the Kent side would be joining them at the National Stadium. City fans queued for hours around Main Road to ensure they got tickets to the game. Excitement was high and one win separated them from a return to the second tier. Richard Edgill says beating Wigan in the semi-finals changed the feeling around the club. I remember the um, atmosphere had totally changed. I was, everyone was really excited to get into training and, and get in, and the training was, was lively. It was uh, a lot of confidence around and 
uh, it was a good place to be. We were trained on main road most days. That we were there. We all ate together after training, and there was a good team spirit. And, we, and that's what got us through it all because we were everyone. We'd all train together. Training was brilliant. There was no fights or falling out. And then we'd go upstairs and eat together upstairs in the blue room. The fans had to wait for the big day at Wembley, though. Having beaten Wigan on the Wednesday evening, there were then 11 days until the playoff final. Nicky Weaver says the anticipation was huge. I remember it'd been a long time from beating Wigan. It was sort of like 10, 11, 12 days. To, we beat Wigan on, say, Wednesday night or Tuesday night or something. And we didn't play till like a week on the Sunday. We trained on Main Road a few times. And you'd go and they'd be queuing outside the ticket office. And, you know, there's just a buzz around the place. And we just wanted it to come. Soon the players were heading down to London for the game. Defender Lee Crooks remembers arriving ahead of the match. We always used to have like a chicken club sandwich night before and you know, drink of blackcurrant and lemonade and all that lot. And we went for a little walk just around London and stuff, you know what I mean? It's a bit surreal, but obviously like the, the Man City fans were well up for it. London was packed, we were walking down the street and you know, and then we went back to the room, got ready, you know, had a bit of a talk with the gaffer, went and got our suits on and stuff and that was it, it was on the way to Wembley. With such an important game on the horizon, it could have been easy for the players to start feeling the nerves. But the team spirit in the camp helped to keep the pressure off. Manager Joe Royal explains what happened when he took the side for a walk around London the day before the match. There was the most torrential downpour you've ever seen. And Kevin Horlock, who, who was and still is marvellously insane, was having a contest with... Jeff Whitley to see who could stand outside the hotel longest in this tropical downpour and I mean that and we're all just looking on from under the cover of the reception just absolutely wetting ourselves at these two idiots to see who can stand out in the rain long enough so it was daft stuff it was boys stuff but it, it was good and it was all part of the pressure relief. Kevin Horlock remembers it well but he says the manager wasn't quite as happy about it as he makes out. Me and Jeff were stood outside, a few of the boys obviously rushed in, and it's, it's, it obviously sounds pretty immature now, I suppose, but at the time, I, I, Jeff, me and Jeff were stood there, and there was a few tourists obviously taking pictures of the rain, eventually taking pictures of me and Jeff because we looked bloody idiots, to be fair, but I just said, Jeff, I'm not going there, I'm going to stay here as long as possible. And then Jeff being Jeff, he said, yep, yeah, I'm staying out as well then. So it turned into a little bit of a standoff for who was going to stay in the rain the longest. And when we say rain, it was unbelievable rain. It was actually torrential. With the rest of the team watching from undercover, who held their nerve the longest? Horlock says it was him. I looked over Jeff's shoulder. We stood there getting drenched, as you do. Uh, and Joe Royal was in the glass window of the hotel saying, get yourself in here now. So obviously then it was the survival of the bravest. Um, and Jeff went in first. But it was funny. Joe, I think probably Joe laughs about it now. He weren't best pleased at the time. Obviously we had a big game the next day, but they were the sort of things that sort of took the, the tension off the boys. Obviously the boys found it quite funny. Um, Joe pretended he was angry, but I'm sure he, he was laughing inside. But Jeff Whitley remembers things slightly differently. I couldn't even tell you what. I think we had, I think we actually might, we might have actually walked in together, all um, get each other, I think. I can't, can't remember exactly that one. He, t- uh, he tells me you went in first. Oh, he, he would say, he would say that. He would say that, that's it all over. No, no. I'm pretty sure, yeah, I think we ended up just walking in together with a great other and thinking, what are we doing out here? <laughs> Despite being convinced that Horlock was lying about who won that contest, 
Whitley is full of praise for what the midfielder brought to the squad on and off the pitch. Kev was a great character in the dressing room. I mean, he was just, you know, phenomenal for the dressing room. He really was. Um, yeah, I, I don't know who come up with that idea, you know what I mean? It was just, you know, you look back at some of the stuff that uh, that we did and I think things like that, it, it helped people to, to, to bond and what have you. Um, I had that connection with Kev as well, with the Northern Ireland, um, you know, connection. And he was just, you know, he was he was a joy to be around, you know, because he was he was a he was such a such a funny funny character. On the day of the game, one memory that sticks with a lot of the players is the coach journey from the hotel to the stadium. Richard Edgill says travelling down Wembley Way is something that he'll never forget. I used to sit in this MC for away games and remember seeing just blue shirts and the lazy yellow and, and dark shirts that we used to have the away kit that we wore that day. Um, just seeing, never seen so many fans in one, on one street as you got to the tunnel entrance at Wembley and it was that, I think that stuck with me. That experience is shared by most of the squad. Defender Lee Crooks remembers it took a long time to get into the stadium because of the sheer volume of fans. Coming up Wembley away on the coach, I think it just showed the magnitude of the game, how big and how important it was to the club at the time, you know. And that really hit home because it was just a sea of blue, that's, you know, that's all it was and the coach was moving so slow into the stadium. I think really that's when it really hit, you know, this we need to do this really. The squad were beginning to feel the nerves. Striker Sean Goater explains that's how he remembers the morning of the match. I actually woke up a little bit earlier than I normally do and and, and I sort of looked at the time and I thought, oh no, I can I can I can lie in for another sort of half hour and but the mind starts is today. And so you can't go back to sleep. And this is where I talk about the energy that, you know, my body was like almost at that point it's like wired, like yes, today. Um, you know, uh, but I then switched my thoughts to just try to get out of my mind, thinking about the game because, again, that's where you can waste a lot of energy. Meanwhile, Gerard Vikins says he suffered quite badly with nerves ahead of the game. Like normal, if if, if there's a, a the day of the of the game, you get nervous. I, I get nervous. I get uh, tensions, and, and but it's, it's it's something you need as a player. I think as a professional player, it, it makes you sharp. It makes you it makes you ready for it. But uh, I can remember that, that at Wembley it was, was more than, than usual. In the build-up to the game and through the warm-ups, coach Willie Donachy explains how he tried to keep things light and take the pressure off. Personally, I I got him playing a lot of head tennis and stuff like that. Just fun stuff. You know, the, the practice all through the week and over the months is what matters. It isn't, you, you can't change something on the day of the game. You don't, I don't believe in all that stuff. But it was, they were good people. That's what it's always all about, good people. And they were a bunch of good people. Soon, though, it was time for the game. The fans had packed out both ends of the ground and it was a record-breaking attendance for a third-tier playoff final. If only they knew at the time what they were about to witness. Goalkeeper Nicky Weaver explains what he remembers of the pre-match build-up. We all had some club suits from Cheerio to Cheerio, whatever it's called. They weren't, uh, they weren't the best suits in the world, but... I suppose we all look relatively smart. Um, I remember the coach journey there and seeing all the city fans all over lot. And you know, once you got to Wembley Way and that, it was just a sea of blue. Uh, I remember walking out, looking over like, as we walked out behind. Used to walk out behind the goal, looking over my left shoulder, my mum and dad, and everyone were up there. Walking out of the tunnel is still a memory that sticks vividly for defender Lee Crooks too. I can always remember coming out of the tunnel because it was just like some guy in the volume up on it. On a high fire, you know what I mean? The closer we got, and the, the scream and the roar was just unbelievable, and the fireworks and that. 
I mean, just talking about it puts the hairs up back of my neck up. Then at 3pm on Sunday the 30th of May 1999, it was time for kickoff. It wasn't a brilliant game if truth be told, and it had a very nervy start, though City should have had the chance to open the scoring as early as 15 seconds into the match. Paul Dickoff tried to wriggle through the Gillingham box, where defender Barry Ashby handled the ball. But Dickoff here looking to lay it off. Tell you what, Rob, that looked handball to me. That looked handball. Matt Halsey having none of it. Dickoff furious. Dickoff just flicks on. Have a look there. That is a penalty. It's inside the box. But a penalty wasn't given, and that's when it began to get a little scrappy. Lee Crooks, who had an early shot just wide, remembers that it was a difficult surface to play on because of the weather. I remember the pitch was absolutely soaking wet, and I must have fallen on my ass about three times in the first ten minutes. I knew that. The gaffer was caning me. Have you got studs on? Have you got studs on? Have you got studs on? We had a couple of chances. I think I must have gone close uh, with a shot from about 20, 30 yards out. We went past the post. And Kevin Horlock missed a good chance to put City into the lead in the first half, heading straight at Gillingham goalkeeper Vince Bartram from six yards out. He explains that's one of the few things from the game he can remember. In all honesty, I don't, and people say it a lot about games at Wembley, I don't remember that much about the game apart from my, my terrible miss with a header that edits right the keeper and, and, and obviously the, the ending. Soon Gillingham had the ball in the net. While the fans from Kent at the far end of the stadium celebrated though, the City supporters breathed a sigh of relief. The offside flag was up. Saba has Taylor breaking to his left, opts instead for Hessenthaler. Now it's Taylor, and now Saba is offside. The flag is up, it won't count. Hessenthaler spots him, thought the big fella was going to head it, tries to drive it, definitely offside. At half-time, the game was still scoreless. With 15 minutes of the second half gone and the match still at a stalemate, Joe Royal decided to play his hand. He made a double substitution. One of those leaving the pitch was Michael Brown. We, we were sort of neck and neck and, and I think Willie and Joe thought, we've got to go and win it. And now, you know, let's make some attacking and let's go for it. He was replaced by Ian Bishop. The midfielder explains that he shouldn't have even been there because of an injury. You know, I wasn't supposed to play. I was I had a hamstring problem and I should have been out for six weeks and it was two weeks after I had to convince Joe and train for that week that I was okay. And even on the day before we left, he said he wasn't going to risk it and I had to beg him. I said, I've got to be there, I don't care on, on the bench or not, but I've got to be there. It was a bold move. Bishop had been a key figure in turning City's season around, but with only three substitutes allowed in the squad back then, it meant it was a risk for Joe Royal to include him if he wasn't ready. Bishop says it was a decision that he and the manager would laugh about later. I don't think he regrets it now, because he did tell me afterwards. I remember him coming on the field and saying, you changed the game, you know. I said, yeah, it was nil-nil. And when it came on, it went two-nil down. Yeah, it changed the game. He went, oh, you know what I mean. But with the game eventually going into extra time, Bishop says he was on the field for longer than he expected. I still ended up having to play an hour. I thought, if I get on at any time, just give me ten minutes, we'll be fine. So I was out there conscious of me hamstring and you know the last thing I wanted to do was to come on and then have to go off again and leave us a man down but um, I can't be way through training I thought I can't be way through a game you know. Meanwhile the other city change on the hour mark was Tony Vaughan replacing captain Andy Morrison. The skipper explains that he was a doubt before the match as he was suffering with a knee problem. My knee was swollen and I had my knee drained and, and, and I had a, a painkiller injection put in before the game and to be perfectly honest with you it numbed it completely and you know there was no feeling there it wore off and um, towards half time and I had some more Joe said to me he, he felt I looked like I was carrying it a bit in the second half you know and 
um, which was his decision. And, uh, you know, so he, he took me off and changed it around a touch. Morrison says that change didn't affect the team too much. Tony was more than an adequate replacement for me, but, you know, they just got a couple of quick goals, at, you know, which seemed, you know, the right time for them because we didn't think we could get back. You know, well, nobody would think you're going to get back. You score in the 89th and 90th minute, you know, you're thinking... You're thinking the time's up. But Tony Vaughan says he found it difficult to be thrown in at such a crucial moment in the game. I think you can see from the two goals. I think yeah, I've not really, I've never really watched the watched the game, the whole game. But um, I think I was involved in both of their goals. So um, you could say that's from coming on and being not being fully on it from the start and everything. With just over 10 minutes left, City almost stole in front. A breakaway saw Terry Cook cross to the back post for Sean Gota, where the Bermudan was a post-width away from opening the scoring. But, most likely because of the way the match ended, the striker says he doesn't remember it. I don't. <laughs> Not at all? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Um, I'd have to see some more highlights of that game, but I don't actually remember. No, not at all. I, I, I hit the post. You hit the, po you hit the post. Well, I can tell you, see, after the game, we obviously celebrated, but... You don't look back at the game in total depth and, and, and what have you. It's like that game's done and dusted. Looking for Dickoff. Cook has gone up on the outside and he's found him, Terry Cook. Looking for Gota. Ashby doesn't make it. And it's hit the post from Sean Gota. This is great play. Dickoff clips it to Cook. Delightful ball. But look at Dickoff. And you have to say, Gota's unlucky. But as City rude their luck with that missed chance, they were soon up against it. With 83 minutes played, Gillingham scored. Taylor's at the edge of the area, but he's worked it through. It's Carlos Alba, and it's a goal in the last 10 minutes of the contest. Could it be the goal that takes Gillingham into the first division for the first time in their history? And dense Manchester City's dream of an immediate return. That strike from Carlos Saba meant City had just seven minutes to get themselves a goal, or they'd be playing for a second season in the third tier. They almost got an immediate response through Paul Dickoff. I just remember missing, well, Vince saving the chance for me. Um, that would have made a big difference and thought, I've got, to get, I've got to get us out of it. You know, and there was a belief amongst the team when we, when we took the kick off to say, look, we're here, there's only us that can change it. And that was sort of the belief and the character of the squad that, that took us from 12th into the playoffs. And the last thing we were going to do was let that go. In comes Richard Edgehill. Dickoff! With five minutes left, Joe Royal threw caution to the wind. He took off defender Lee Crooks to bring on his final substitute striker Gareth Taylor. He explains what the manager said to him on the touchline. I think he, I think he said something along the lines of all the best son, go and enjoy yourself and I nearly looked at him and started laughing but um, I think he was sort of resigned to the fact then that was it, just go and enjoy it um, and I'd played in four Wembley playoff finals and I think I'd already lost the first two, I'd lost with Bristol Rovers and I'd lost with Sheffield United and this was my third one and I'm thinking I'm going to lose another one here, this is three on the bounce. It got worse for City moments later, there were only three minutes of the 90 left and Gillingham doubled their lead courtesy of Robert Taylor. Carla Sarva the goal scorer and it's Taylor through this time. Taylor, 2-0! Gillingham are surely there now, making history in the process. Quick thinking here from
Wissam Asaba, the touch is not bad, but this is brilliant. Telling us away from Vaughan, 20 yards out, right foot, drills it low. And that is bye-bye Division 2 for Gillingham. Division 1, here we come. Even the most optimistic of City fans had written the team off at that point. With only a couple of minutes plus stoppage time remaining, they began to head for the exits and the mood in that end of the ground was deflated. Kevin Horlock says he remembers that feeling vividly. I thought that was it, if I'm totally honest, as did everybody, even Gillian. I, I'll never forget it. I, I remember the ball got cleared down into our left-back position and it rolled out of play and I think we had a throw-in down here, our own corner flag. And I turned and, and I was thinking, oh, we've got to go back to, I won't name the club, we've got to go back there, we've got to go back there, oh dear, what? Well, what, what's happened? And I remember looking up and seeing their two centre-halves cuddling each other, jumping up and down on the spot. And, and, and that, that will always stick with me because the disappointment I felt at that moment was, was incredible. Striker Paul Dickoff says he felt he'd had the stuffing knocked out of him. I remember crouching down on, on my hands and knees thinking we're blowing it. Um, but I can honestly say that I can't... I didn't actually know how long was left. Manager Joe Royal says he thought it was over. I do remember also when the second goal went in, I turned to Willie Donachy and said, uh, it looks like Scunny next season. You know, and Scunthorpe had just won the playoff the day before, you know, with the inferences that we'd now have Scunthorpe to contend with. It, it was just the way I was feeling. Chairman David Bernstein was watching from the stands. He explains that it's a feeling that will never leave him. Very clear, I can tell you, I was as clear, to, clear today as I was then. I was looking at that giant scoreboard at Wembley, Manchester City nil, Gillingham 2, and hearing the Gillingham crowd singing away and thinking to myself, what the hell are we going to do next season? This will be really difficult. Goalkeeper Nicky Weaver admits he thought it was over, but he wanted to get on with it just in case. I always remember, I got the ball out of the net as quick as I could and got it back to the halfway line. And I remember just saying, come on, you know, because obviously we'd just seen what United had done. And if you get one, you know, it only takes a second to score a goal. As 90 minutes approached, the City fans that had stayed inside the ground saw their team score. A ball through to Sean Gota was deflected out to Kevin Horlock by the goalkeeper, and the midfielder, arriving late, drilled it into the empty net. Even then, though, he admits he thought it was too little, too late. All I really thought was hit the target, head down, get a good connection on it, and hit the target, and lucky enough I did. I caught it quite sweet, and it obviously went in. And On a selfish point, I still didn't think that was enough. I, I, I didn't envisage what was going to happen after that obviously but I thought the time was up and, and on a personal point and I know it sounds dreadfully selfish but I thought oh, we've had a terrible day but I've scored at Wembley um, and I tell the grandkids that. And Gota's through here, great challenge but the fourth shot is in and Manchester City have given themselves some late hope here through the goal from Horlock. Oh, well, well. Could City somehow, somehow hold themselves back? It's a beautiful little flick from Dickoff. Suddenly Gotan looks to be scoring. Horlock arrives, keeps it low, drives up his left peg. Past man of the match, Batram. Just when Gotan find a chance, Horlock arrives, keeps it low. And City is the time left. Seconds after that goal was scored to make it 2-1, the fourth official held up five added minutes. The Gillingham bench were fuming, having made defensive changes to try and hold on, and it seemed to give City a lift. Referee Mark Halsey explains where the added time came from. If you go back, I remember they uh, they run they run the, um, the the DVD back on the game, and um, I mean there was we had sort of uh, goals goal scoring celebration. I mean I think I remember 
one of the junior players jump and ran right away to the uh, to the crowd. You know, it's a long way from Wembley, wasn't it? You know, so uh, from from the pitch. So in that we had uh, cautions, we had substitutes, we had a little bit of time wasting. So I think, all in all, I think I should have played about nine minutes. A lot of the squad put their positivity down to the impact that City's assistant manager had had on the team. Willie Donachie says he couldn't see any point in giving up. Something came to me that just, I, I could see everywhere. People were all walking out, everybody was down. And I could see there's a choice, either just give up or get them going. So I just started shouting, get it up there, <laughs> get the ball forward, get into their box when everybody was just like devastated. But then everybody got onto it, everybody, and then we got a goal, and then everybody was buzzing. And then I could see their bench getting a little bit nervous, and when it came up five minutes or something extra time, I could see they were really panicking. And manager Joe Royal says he didn't think City would definitely equalise, but he was feeling hopeful. No, I couldn't say I felt we'll do this, but I I definitely would have. I wouldn't be even negative, because I'm not a negative person. I would have thought... Hey, you never know. But with five minutes of stoppage time to play, Paul Dickoff says the goal for 2-1 came at a vital time. He thinks it gave the side a lift. It's easy to say it now. I remember within myself as we're going back for we're going to take kick-off that I had one more chance in me. I just had a feeling that I was going to get one more chance before the end of the game. Or the team were going to get one more chance and it was, it was imperative that we took it. City got the chance they wanted. With just 50 seconds left on the clock, a long ball deflected to Dickoff inside the box. Falling backwards, he pulled the trigger and side-footed it past the goalkeeper and into the roof of the net. The striker explains what he can remember. When you score a goal like that, it's instinctive, so you don't have time to think about it. If I had time to think about it, I probably would have missed it, to tell you the truth. And then um, the feeling after that was just pure elation. Well, it's not over till the final whistle, and City here looking for opening. It's Dickoff again! Passion, ecstasy, relief, everything, um, everything in it. And I look back um, at the goal, and I just think possibly of the work I'd done on my finishing throughout that season. You know, it made it all worthwhile. And before that, um, finishing was a little bit hit and miss, but I worked really hard that season on the first touch and hitting the target and. You know, that just all seemed to come together. Manager Joe Royal says he thinks the strikers finishing improved over the course of that season too. He was an over-excitable kicker of the ball. He used to get in great positions and try and kill the ball, smash everything into the back of the net. And I, I said to him, calm down, just concentrate on hitting the target. You know, goalkeepers dive the wrong way. Goalkeepers can go over the ball, the ball can go over the goalkeepers. I said, but if you hit the target, you can score a goal. Just make sure you hit the target. And um, and when his big chance came, of course, he, he side-footed it. You know, and I, I'd, I'd like to think that prior to my arrival, he might have blasted that, you know. And despite being at the other end of the pitch, goalkeeper Nicky Weaver thinks he had a part to play in Dickoff's equaliser as well. I remember the ball went out of play and I've sprinted and passed it down the wing to, might have been to Richard Edgill. And then when I throw it and then it went back, and then in and then we scored. I always thought I got that, you know. But I don't think it ever showed it you on the... Uh, on the footage, it must have been shown a replay or something else. Meanwhile, the scorer of City's first goal, Kevin Horlock, says that equaliser meant his goal was forgotten. Not that he seems to mind too much. I remember having a little sad, to be fair, I mentioned his goal more than mine, because obviously no one remembers mine now, but I actually had a touch in the build-up, and, and you, it's hard to see on the video. Um, 
Um, the ball came out and I just touched it around the corner to, to Goats, I think it was. And obviously Goats got tackled. Um, I just remember him striking through the ball and I, I just remember seeing the, the obviously net rippling and, and yeah, it was unbelievable. When the ball hit the back of the net, Dickoff peeled away and led the celebrations. He slid on his knees across the Wembley turf as the entire team piled on top of him. Though for some to join in, it was a little harder, as defender Tony Vaughan explains. Just remember, Wembley's a long pitch to run after somebody. Um, it was a long way to run. The celebrations remain some of the most iconic images in City's history. Dickoff explains that it shows perfectly how he was feeling at the time. I could never repeat that as passionately as that if I, if I tried. You know, it's just, as I said, I think all emotions came out and, you know, the, the, the noise the fans made and the noise the players made when they jumped on top of me, it was just, it was, it's a moment I'll remember. City's goalkeeper Nicky Weaver decided not to sprint the length of the pitch to join in with the celebrations and he explains what he did instead. When it just went into that net, I, mean, I remember running, I dived on my belly at uh, all the lads, and, but then I'm thinking, well, a, you know, might be a minute or two left here. And then we had to sort of like settle ourselves and obviously when we went in for the little huddle um, after full time, we were sort of like elated, so you could feel us going to come again and they must have just, like I said, they took the two forwards off to put defensive players on. So they had nothing to offer. As the celebrations were beginning to die down on the pitch, there was a moment that was missed by nearly everybody inside the stadium. And it was missed by the TV cameras too. Kevin Horlock explains. The one thing I remember after that is, is Dickie's run off like he did. He obviously ran off and, and the famous picture of him sliding on his knees. Me being obviously a little bit slower, I had a real bad ankle at the time f f from, from a kick on it, so my ankle was quite swollen. The time I got to the celebration, everyone was sort of half getting up. Um, and I'll never forget it. Dickie sort of went to throw his arm in the air in celebration and he f actually slipped and lost his foot and fell on his face but no one really see it and I, and, and, and I sort of laughed to him as he was walking back to the halfway line I don't think it's kept caught on camera I don't think the City fans see it because um, they're obviously ecstatic and jumping about the lads that had celebrated at the start had obviously walked back to positions that were obviously tired because we'd, we'd put so much effort in to get straight but Dickie I, well I'd like to think Dickie remembers it it was quite funny Paul Dickoff does remember it well obviously we've celebrated I've went to my knees all the players have come over and Kev was the last one Kev and Jeff Whitley and I've sort of turned to throw my arms up to the crowd on my own and I've ended up spinning around and slipping and going flat on my face. How the cameras haven't got it, I'll never know. Hey, look, Kev winds me up all the time because Kev says that it, it was his goal that made me, you know, and his goal does get forgot about. And, um, he, was, he was a massive driving force behind us that season. For Dickoff, on a personal level, the goal was something of a special strike too. While it meant a lot for him to equalise for City, it was past a goalkeeper who was one of his best friends in football. In fact, the striker and Vince Bartram were best man at each other's weddings. Dickoff says that thought didn't cross his mind once as he went to shoot. I still remind Vince of it now. And the weird thing is, and I've said this in an interview a few years ago, that um, actually before Christmas time, me and Vince and the families were together and we'd actually spoke about if it went to the playoffs and we'd been at Wembley. And what it would be like playing against each other and I just say that wouldn't affect me in the slightest. If anything, it makes you more determined to get one over your mate. With that equalising goal, the game went into extra time. Gillingham had taken off one of their centre forwards in Carla Saba to try and hold out under the City pressure. City, meanwhile, were in all-out attack mode, having put so much effort into getting level. Gareth Taylor explains that meant he was feeling confident. I just had an unbelievable feeling of, it's ours. This is ours. And you can just imagine how the Gillingham players were feeling when they were walking around, when the whistle had gone and we were going into extra time. They were so deflated. And then all of a sudden, we were in the ascendancy. But also at that stage as well, we had about four strikers on the pitch. So 
Joe's asked me to go and play in midfield and I remember just having so much of the ball in the extra time period, me and Bish on a, on a really big pitch. And I can remember just having, uh, I really enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed playing in midfield and pulling the strings with Bish. And Jeff Whitley explains just how tired he was going into the added time. I was feeling exhausted but I was also, I was absolutely starving. And you know, we didn't have any Jaffa cakes or anything like that or, or and it's just something that you know, you see some players, you know, they run off and they grab grab a little something, have a little bite. And um, I could have really done with a little energy boost um, going into extra time because I was, I was, I was absolutely, I was so hungry and I was getting a sort of, almost like a sickly feeling because I was so hungry. City tried but they couldn't find the breakthrough and they were perhaps lucky not to have conceded a penalty in the final minutes. Just as they should have had a spot kick inside the opening seconds of the match for handball, Gillingham appealed for handball in the closing seconds. Whitley had slid in to block a low cross into the middle, and it had struck his arm as he forced it behind for a corner. The midfielder thinks he was lucky. Do you know what? I think it was, um, you know, I've not intentionally gone to uh, handball it, but, you know, it has hit my hand, and again, it could have been another turning point. But again, these things happen so quickly that... You know, you're not. Sometimes you're just not conscious of. You know, actually, just stay on your feet. You want to just stop the ball. You want to go in and get that. You know, win that tackle. So, you know, things like that is uh, you're just going off instincts. It meant the game finished level and it went to penalties. City won the toss and decided to take the kicks in front of their own fans. Goalkeeper Nicky Weaver thinks that was crucial, but he also admits that he was in a win-win position. Whenever it's a penalty shootout as a goalie, it's sort of like rub your hands time because you cannot lose because. You know, there's no pressure on you, um, and I think the biggest thing for us was getting the penalty kicks at our end. Because no disrespect to the Gillingham players, but I mean the City players as well. To be fair, you wouldn't have fancied taking a penalty, certainly not when you've got all the noise and the City fans behind that goal. The team had prepared for penalties in the build-up to the game. Gerard Vikins, who, by his own admission, suffered quite badly with nerves during big games and during the shootout, explains why it was a very tense moment in the match. We practiced them uh, uh, a few weeks before uh, the final. We practiced them, I think, every day after training. And I was one of the, of the uh, penalty takers who, who scored a lot in training. But I remember that I, uh, I had to take them uh, with my art club in Holland. And I, I, it was very difficult for me because I think I, I, I missed half of them. So I, I wasn't feeling confident, and, uh, and they asked me to uh, if, if I wanted to take a penalty, and I said, mm, if I don't have to, rather not. City's first taker was Kevin Horlock. He stepped up and sent Vince Bartram the wrong way, putting his side immediately into the lead. He explains that he was expecting to take one of the kicks. I think penalties are important that whoever takes them, they've got to want to take it. it you can't really have someone going up if they're not sure about, if they're confident enough. And, and to be fair, I'd missed penalties. I'd miss, I think it says in the commentary, I'd missed the one before. So I wasn't no hotshot penalty taker, but I was confident enough. I, I was brave enough. I was one of the older players in the group. Um, so I said, yeah, go on, I'll go on, I'll go up first. In response, Gillingham sent Paul Smith forward. He opted to go straight down the middle and with power, and Nicky Weaver saved it to give City the advantage. The goalkeeper, though, says the stop was no accident. Everyone says it hit my legs, but it didn't. I dived, remember it now. As I dived, I took my left foot towards the ball and, and so I kicked it, if you like, rather than it hitting my leg. Um, but yeah, it's more of a, a lucky save, if you like, because it, 
he's probably not hit it exactly where he's wanted to. Um, and he pretty much went right where the legs of my feet were. After Weaver's save, City had the chance to put Gillingham under pressure. But what the fans were about to witness was truly remarkable. Paul Dickoff here has the opportunity to give City a healthy 2-0 lead in the shootout. And it hit the post and stayed out. Unbelievable. It's both posts here. Unbelievable. Batram was floored. Thought he was beaten. And Dickoff can't believe it. Sends him the wrong way. Look, one post, two posts and out to safety. Paul Dickoff had the full range of emotions that afternoon. From scoring the last-minute equaliser to keep City in the game, he missed his penalty, though he couldn't have gone any closer. His kick hit the inside of the right-hand post, travelled across the line, hit the inside of the left-hand post and bounced out. Manager Joe Royal explains why he was surprised it didn't go in. In all the penalty practices we'd had, Dickie had been comfortably the best penalty taker we had. So when it came to penalties, I was very confident with Dickie and I thought, well, go on, master blaster. And, and as you say, he hit two posts and I've never seen that before in a, a penalty shooter. The striker says he'd been feeling confident after performing well in the penalty practices in training. It was sod's law that, I mean, as you say, you can't um, replicate what you do in training on a match there because every single penalty I took, and there must have been hundreds of them, went in that side netting. And, um, you know, I spoke to Joe and Joe said he was so confident about me walking up. You know, and the worst thing about it is I've sent Vince, and Vince was going for a pie in the stadium because he went the wrong way. And for it to hit both posts, my, my heart just sunk. Meanwhile, goalkeeper Nicky Weaver, who saved two penalties in the shootout, says he'd had a nightmare the week before. I had a stinker that week in training, but Dickie, he was just going that corner all the time. And just hitting the corner. So even when I knew where, without going stupidly early, it was like a tennis ball machine, it was just going in the corner every time. And I, we practiced every day after training, and I just pff, didn't really get near any. <laughs> and obviously, Dickie was probably, I mean, it's, it's probably at two millimetres in, in, in the post and gone in. And coach Willie Donachie says he was pleased for the goalkeeper. Penalties, it's a bit out of your, it's the lap of the gods, you know. But we, we had practiced penalties, and it's, the funny thing is, in, in the practice, and Nicky Weaver never saved one because the, the penalty takers were so good. Not that he was bad. So for him to be the hero, that was nice. And the players to, to win, that was great. After Dickoff's miss, Gillingham's Adrian Pennock then fluffed his lines too, meaning after two penalties each, the score was still 1 0 to City. Up next was Terry Cook. The winger still remembers his kick. Joe Ward, before four, he actually went round and asked who wants to take a penalty. And I know some lads said they didn't want to take one. And he asked me, and straight away I just said yes. But then thinking, oh, I go, what have I just done? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, I just said yes. But I just knew like, I had a responsibility of taking one. I didn't think twice of it. That's when the nerves did settle in. All game I wasn't nervous at all. And he says as he went up to take the penalty, the goal looked tiny. The stands was about half a mile away behind the goal. So literally when you put the ball down the spot and you looked up at the goal, the goal looked tiny. It looked like a five-side goal to me. That's why I kept it hard and low. I'd even look at the keeper, put the ball down, turn my back, walked out up to the 18-yard line, and then like when the whistle blew a turn, and I just knew I was going to pick my spot, and that's why I kept it hard and low, because literally the whole goal just shrunk. After Cook had made it 2-0 to City, Gillingham's John Hodge pulled one back, and then there was a surprise for the fans behind the goal. They must have been expecting another forward player to be running up to take their fourth kick, but instead they saw Richard Edgill, a man who'd never scored in his senior career. He produced the best penalty of the lot though, 
clipping the underside of the crossbar and sending it into the top corner. The fullback says he put his name down during training. The week after the Wigan game, we probably decided that week, and George just came to me and said, would you, would you be willing to take one? And I said, yeah, I had the confidence in, in training. I'd not really missed too many. And I'd always gone the same way, and the keeper just couldn't seem to save them. So I did have the confidence to take one and knew that if it went to panels, I'd be taking one. And then it was only after the extra time had finished that it dawned on me, and I thought, I'm actually going to have to stand and go and take one. Did you mean to get that close to the ball? No, I didn't. But like I said, I practised the same way every time and I'd gone that, that side of the goalkeeper and I'd always gone sort of middle of the goal. Um, so when it, I think nerves had played a big part in it. I think I'd put the ball down, step back and felt really nervous. It meant the score was 3-1 and Gillingham had to convert their next kick. The responsibility fell to Guy Butters. Guy Butters misses this penalty. Manchester City will be in the first division next season. Gillingham will stay in division two. He has missed it! Manchester City are up! They did it the hard way, but Nicky Weaver calls them forward for the celebrations. Celebrations that are fully merited for the way they fought their way back into it. He can hardly contain himself. Look at him. With that save, Nicky Weaver set off on a run around the stadium as the fans began to celebrate in the stands. Though the goalkeeper says he'd lost count of the score in the shootout and needed help from the officials. I said to him, I'm saying to but if I save this, is that it? He went, yeah, and I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. So yeah, I picked my side, I dived. It weren't the greatest penalty in the world, it was only sort of like here, yeah, I managed to save it. And um, I don't know why I went on that silly run, and I think just, you know, youthful exuberance or something, but yeah, I went on that run and I just didn't want that moment to end, I think, and uh, I just kept running and eventually um, Andy Morrison stopped me and then there was a, a mass pile on. Captain Andy Morrison remembers catching the goalkeeper. Nicky went uh, a bit crazy and started running and uh, and every lads would, the lads were chasing him in a circle, but you know, I'm slightly older and a bit more intelligent, that's why I cut him off at a slight angle and got hold of him and he was just, you know, he was out of breath, he'd been running and um, we had a big pile on and, uh, and, and and he was struggling. Morrison says that after he'd wrestled the goalkeeper to the floor, more and more people just kept jumping on top of him. There must have been 20 people, I think the physio and the doc were on top as well and, uh, you know, and he really struggled but eventually he got up and you know, he infamously, infamously said to me, uh, you know, get off you big fat bastard, you know. Uh, and I asked him, was he all right? And uh, he said, I will be when you get off. Weaver remembers his words just as clearly. Get off you fat bastard or something like that, I think it was. But I, I mean, I just ran and ran and ran. I was so tired, the lads piled on. Oh, and I just couldn't breathe. Um, they eventually got me off and then you sort of like just see the lads and the fans and it all started to sink in a little bit what had just happened. In all of the celebrations, the City fans didn't get to see who would have taken their fifth penalty. Some of the squad thought it might have been Ian Bishop, but the midfielder denies the rumours. However, he does think he's got a claim to fame where penalty shootouts are concerned. Now everybody who takes penalties, the whole team's on the halfway line with their arms around each other. I got everybody together and I think that's the first time it ever happened. Honestly, no, I'm not kidding. I may be wrong, but I thought that's why. In the end, the player that would have taken City's fifth penalty was Sean Gota, and the Bermudan says he was a little relieved it never got to him. I think Nicky thought, well, sad that I better save a couple. <laughs> I think somebody whispered in Nicky says, hey, Sean's the, next, Sean's the fifth penalty taker, so we need to make sure he save at least two. Hey, I hope they miss, miss another one. But um, yeah, I mean, 
Penalties for me is a situation that it's who wants it on the day, who's brave. I wasn't scared not to take one. And so therefore I said, yeah, um, I'll, I'll take one. So then he, he, he sorted out the order of it. But yeah, I was the fifth penalty taker. And um, I was pleased because I, I think I was going for a little dink down the middle. <laughs> <laughs> the win meant City had just about bounced back from their lowest ever season at the first attempt. Manager Joe Royal explains that he felt it was something that shouldn't be over-celebrated. One of the first things, David Bernstein came up to me after the game and he said, I've had contact from the town hall, they, they want to know will we do an open top bus tour next week and I said no. I said Manchester City coming out of the third tier, celebrating the third now. I said that's not right. But in the squad, there were some celebrations of how they turned the game around. Striker Gareth Taylor explains about one get-together they all had. The celebrations are sort of sketchy afterwards to the memory because of the amount that was consumed. But um, no, it was it was a good. I, I do remember going to Dickies the day after. Actually, I had a great um, barbecue at Paul's, and all of the guys were there, and Chappie was there, and it was. It was fantastic. And Paul Dickoff explains how one member of the team nearly missed out on the party. The funniest story I can tell about it is um, Bish, Ian Bishop, um, who was a character, he, he stayed in London with his family and he's called me about 12 o'clock on the Sunday to find out um, he, was in, he was in London, he was having some lunch somewhere near King's Cross, I think it was, to find out how it was going and Bish hated missing out on anything so I told him all the boys were here, we're all having a laugh and a celebration then about four o'clock my front door went and it was Bish. He told his family that he was going to the toilet in the restaurant and went straight to King's Cross and jumped in a train and ended up in my eyes. Ian Bishop admits he felt out of place staying in London, even though he was with his family. Gone out with my wife and my friend and his wife and I just wasn't myself. It just um, and they notice, can we? I'm normally I'm normally the rowdy one, normally the lively one. I just had one of the best days of my life and I was sitting there miserable. Uh, and my missus said to me afterwards, what's wrong? I said, look, I don't belong here. I just I feel I should be back with the boys, you know. Uh, we planned a good day out the next day, and uh, I got up in the morning, I just said to me, missus, look, is it OK if I, if I jump a train and go? I said, I've got to be at the barbecue at least. She went, you know what, I think that's where you want to be. I think you should go. Bishop says he jumped into a taxi and headed for the station. I got there bang on the train leaving. I didn't have time to buy a ticket. I jumped straight on the train. I thought, I'll buy the ticket when the conductor comes, you know. I went to the Buffy car, bought myself a couple of cans of beer, sat there with my head down, noticed people walking by, seeing the city colours. This is like the day after, I didn't think people would stay it over. I just kept my head down and then all of a sudden somebody didn't walk by, they stopped right by me. When I looked up, it was, it was one of the fellas from, the, from Platte Lane, one of the grounds, and he just said to me, he said, look, all the coaches down there are full of City fans, why don't you come down? The midfielder took the groundsman up on his offer, but says he had to collect some refreshments first. I went and bought two trays of beer from the, the Buffy car, walked them down, carried them down the aisle. And as it got closer, like there was more and more City fans dotted about. And then I opened this one door and then it was just, the noise was deafening, it was unbelievable. Walked in, plonked the two trays of beer down on the table. There was people swinging off the luggage racks and nobody seemed to be sitting down I was you know I thought oh sod it I'm here now it's what three hours three and a half hours constant singing and drinking uh, I seen the conductor come in he stopped he thought he's never getting through so he turned and went back I ended up bunking on the train I didn't buy a ticket when the train stopped in Macclesfield Bishop says he had no idea how to get to Paul Dickoff's house from the station but he got a helping hand from one of the passengers one of the fans just said um, my dad's picking me up, we'll take you. 
happy days. So jumped in the car with them, got to Dickies, uh, could hear the noise from the back. I just I got around the front and shouted his name, and he he, he jumped over the fence like like your dog does when you come home. Pinned me down on the front lawn. I wouldn't let me off. When the celebrations had died down, it was time to reflect on what had just happened. In many ways, the manner of City's revival that season was an important factor in the success that followed the next season, as they completed back-to-back -back promotions to return to the Premier League. Willie Donachie says he disagrees with those who don't like the playoffs. It's a great way to go up. It's the best way, better than winning, I think. And I love the playoffs. I think it's great for the game. Everybody's said, oh, no, we don't agree. It's fantastic for the game, because we like me a few weeks to go, you can have like 12 teams still in their chance of promotion. With that promotion, and possibly without knowing it at the time, City won one of the most important games in their history. Without the victory at Wembley in 1999, who knows where the club would be today. Joe Royal thinks one of the biggest factors on how the future of the club could have changed was the supporters. Somebody said to me, did you, after Gillingham, after Gillingham, <laughs> everything is before or after Gillingham, did did you ever think of the consequences had we lost that game? And I didn't till afterwards, but the, the biggest consequence, of course, is the fans had stayed with us um, for that season. Everywhere we went, we broke records with the away fans. I, I don't know that the fans would have stayed with us another season, to that extent. I like to think that they would. And I, I always, always say, you know, that the City fans are the best in the business because no other club of their size has had to endure the pain and the anguish that they have and then they stood by it. Whether or not that, that would have gone into a second season, I don't know. Just over a decade after winning that playoff final, City had completed a return to the top table in English football. It was nine years after being in the third tier that Sheikh Mansour took over what had become a mid-table Premier League side. It was then only a couple more years until City were back winning the top honours. But Royal says he doesn't think what he and the team achieved in 1999 was the platform for all of that. I will accept that the the uh, Gillingham game was was very very important in City's history, but you, you, I wouldn't say a platform. The, the platform for the modern success came with money, as it does with all clubs. You know, in 1963, Everton were the Merseyside millionaires, um, and then uh, Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool have all had their spells of being big spenders and, and, and successful. Let, let's just say we, we, we certainly put a, a support under the club when it was badly needed. Some suggested that defeat at Wembley could have been the end of the club. The financial situation was bad, but was it so bad that City could have gone out of business had they failed to get out of the third tier? David Bernstein doesn't think it would have got that far. No, I don't think out of business in the in the real sense because football clubs don't go out of business in that sense. I think if we'd been a, you know, a normal commercial company, then the answer might have been yes. But no, I don't. You know, football clubs have a way of carrying on. But I think what might have happened is that that sort of a, that that circle of decline could have could have continued if we hadn't gone up. The chairman explains how things might have gone had things been different against Gillingham. Supporters would have got disillusioned. You know, I, you know, I, I had a window as a new chairman to sort of try and agenda some success. Joe Wall had a window as a new manager, and if you didn't succeed, and you know, we spent another year in the in the um, first division. Uh, I think it would have got increasingly difficult, and you know, people's confidence in us would have probably reduced. So, getting up would have got even more difficult. You know, every year you don't do it. I mean, you look at other clubs, look at Leeds United. 
and how they struggled ever to get back to the Premier League. You know, if they'd done it, they needed to do it quickly or it gets more difficult year on year. Winning the playoff final did have one impact on the future of the club though. David Bernstein explains that had they stayed down that year, there's a chance that City could still be playing at Main Road to this day. We needed that first time promotion, it was really important and among other things I knew that if we didn't go up there was a chance that the new stadium deal wouldn't happen because the the council who'd been the Manchester Council who'd been extremely supportive and uh, my relationship with Howard Bernstein uh, had been very very good um, but you know I knew they wanted to see some signs that the club was going in the right direction of, and of progress and that promotion was vital. There's something about City and injury time in their big matches. Just 13 years after they came back from the dead to win promotion at Wembley, they did it again to win their first ever Premier League title. Again, needing two goals in stoppage time, Edin Dzeko and Sergio Aguero matched what had been done by Kevin Horlock and Paul Dickoff in 1999. But how does Dickoff feel about the club now having a more famous last-minute strike? It's humbling for me, you know, because I, I don't think it's any secret that um, I'm a City fan myself and I love my time there, so... To, to have that sort of stuff thrown at me, I get quite embarrassed sometimes, especially when you look at the, the quality of Aguero to the quality that I had, you know, it's, it's chalk and cheese. Um, you know, some people have said Aguero stole my thunder a little bit, but there was nobody um, more delighted than me when, it, when he scored that goal. And Andy Morrison says that QPR game meant he'd experienced the highs and the lows from both sides of the fence. I've experienced it as a player, and then I experienced it as a fan, you know, with my son, and he was... A, grew up now and he's blue you know he's blue through and through and and it was surreal really you know for Jekyll to score the goal that just seemed to be a bit of a you know oh well same as what Kevin Horlock's goal was and you know when Jekyll will be, won't be, will be remembered similar to Kevin Horlock you know nobody knows who remembers who scored the first goal you know and it was about Aguero and Dickoff. Morrison believes that if there's one set of supporters that deserve to have some time in the sun then it's cities. We had 30 odd 32 35,000 from sort of January onwards at home every game was sellouts you know and I, I never forget that you know, incredible loyalty to the football club, not to the to the players or the team, it's their football club, you know, and that's what they do, they follow their football club no matter where it is, you know, hell or high water, shit or champagne, they're, they're, they're there, you know, and um, so, you know, if any group of fans ever deserve to be getting the players and buying the players that we're buying now and being in a position to stick your chest down and say, you know, that's my football club, look where we are now. Um, it's them fans, they know, they're entitled to that because they were there having to sort of say, well, that's my club when we were halfway down the second division and, you know, those across the road were doing the treble. Down the years, it's always felt for City fans that last-minute goals have been things that have happened to other teams. But with it being two late strikes that saved the club from its lowest ever position and two more that won its first ever Premier League title, perhaps that's not necessarily true. Here's to the class of 1999, the Manchester City team that came back from the dead. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 
please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. David Mooney speaking to all of the 1999 third tier playoff winning team. David joins me in the studio now. I'm your host, Sam Roscoe. We're also joined by City fan and blogger Richard Burns. So, fellas, going back 20 years... Every fan remembers where they were. What about you two? Yeah, I was I was at Wembley. I was I was ten years old. It was the uh, the end of my first season uh, as a season ticket holder, and uh, the idea of of going to Wembley was extremely exciting. Um, and I remember going with absolutely uh, absolutely no thought in my mind that City could possibly lose that game. It was a, it was a a foregone conclusion to me that that they had to win because. That's just how things worked. It had been, you know, the second half of the season had been so good that um, I just sort of assumed they, they had to win. And it was it was so exciting going to Wembley for the first time. I don't remember it like that, you know. I I, I was very scared that they might lose. And it was it was a big occasion that they might lose on. And I suppose it was my... You say it was your first year as a season ticket holder. Yes. Yeah. It was my second year as a season ticket holder. And so I, I'd only ever known them mess up on the big stage. I'd never <laughs> known them do anything right. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't remember... I don't remember going and thinking... I don't I don't remember going and thinking they'll do this. I remember going and thinking they need to do this. Mm. Um, but I was very worried that they weren't going to. Would you say that pessimism something that you've carried on into... For the, for the 20 years <laughs> since, yeah, yeah, as it happens, yeah. Because my optimism isn't... I, I've definitely come much more down to your level, I think. Yeah, I was on a school trip. I was in Anglesey. Oh, what? At the, t- at the at, time? At the time of the playoff. My dad drove from Manchester to Anglesey, which is no mean drive. Um, picked me up. We went down to Wembley. Uh, we watched the game. And at 2-0 down, I was ready. I was sharing a tent with a lot of United fans who had won the European Cup the week before. Um, so I was ready to go back to Anglesey, pick up my stuff and go home. There was still a week of the school trip left. Um, they obviously won. We went. Uh, he, he, uh, we actually, he actually then drove us back to Manchester for the, uh, for the, uh, after the game and then drove me back to Anglesey again. He must have done about 800 miles round trip that, that weekend. I think his average speed must have been about 50 miles an hour for the weekend. It was incre- incredible. That's, um, that's quite a commitment and quite a journey. Uh, not to... Uh, not to try and one-up. playing one-upmanship already. Well, not on my own behalf, but can I, to tell you of, um, I think, the longest journey that I know for that game, maybe for any football match. Uh, my uncle at the time, uh, he used to live in Japan. Um, he lived there for about eight years teaching English. And I think when he was when he was leaving Japan, I think it was, he uh, he did a bit of a travel traveling around South America. And he was between, if I remember rightly, he was going from Argentina to Chile or the other way. Um, and he gets a phone call off my dad one morning. Paul, I can get you a ticket for Wembley. <laughs> yes or no, do you want it? And without thinking, he just said, yeah, I'll be back. Whatever it takes, I'll be back for it. Um, and he used to come back for like one game a year. Um, and he, yeah, he did. He, he interrupted his break for South America. And literally, we, we stayed down at my uncle's in uh, in Surrey the night before. Um, the other uncle, obviously. And then my uncle, Paul, who's travelled from South America turns up literally the night before um, comes and has a drink sort of goes to bed comes to the game the next day and then literally after the match back Cat- to South America flight, yeah. yeah it's a good job it was a game worth staying for isn't it <laughs> absolutely I remember uh, I, because I am a you're, little you're, bit you're, younger you're the than you two fans, <laughs> because I am younger than you two um, you were at I, two weren't you no 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 <laughs> I was a bit older than that but I wasn't old enough to go uh, but all the rest of my family did um 
my dad, my sister, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties all went down on a minibus. Uh, my mum stayed at home. And um, my uncle, other uncle, lives was well was living at the time in Australia. Uh, God, so suddenly Anglesey doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can remember my mum had the landline phone uh, to the side of the TV where the sound came out whilst the penalties were on, on the phone to Australia to my uncle. That must have cost uh, a bomb in yeah, 99 as well. Wow. <laughs> and uh, um, I can just remember it um, when the penalties were going on and and uh, that was that was quite a funny memory. Um but yeah, so back in 1999, like you say, it must have cost a bomb and, and also the time difference as well, which must I've have been... I've been middle of the night as well, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> just imagine having to, to get up in the middle of the night to, <laughs> to, to listen, it, listen to, to listen, that, to listen to, to, listen to, the to TV that. commentary of the penalties <laughs> at Wembley. Uh, top stuff. Anyway, obviously, it's 20 years on. I know this obviously gets gets brought up. The, the club are, are very good at recognising that team and, and that final and how significant it was. Nobody will ever know really what would have happened if, if it wouldn't have <clears throat> turned out the way it did. But how important do you think that game was in the grand scheme of things now? I think... Um, I, I don't think City would not exist. Mm. That I mean, I think that's kind of like... I think that's worst-case scenario. I think it would have... They would have survived in some shape or form. Maybe even survived and got back to the Premier League. I don't know, um, but I think the one thing that that struck me was was when David Bernstein speaks about the new stadium deal because the new stadium deal was key or part of it, according to Gary Cook, of the new owners coming in and, and Sheikh Mansour taking it because he Gary Cook tells a story about how. Um, uh, Sheikh Mansour was looking at a number of clubs. Liverpool were one, Newcastle were another. Um, and what swung it for City was not only was the potential to get them towards the top of the table with, without, I'm not to say without a lot of work because there was a lot of work that had to go in, but they were a mid-table Premier League team when he took over and they were they were able to kind of have that quick in, investment to get them to the top of the league. But there was the land around the ground to develop and to create into this, this uh, what is now the, the CFA, um, which didn't exist for uh, Newcastle or Liverpool and it didn't exist for Main Road either. So... If the stadium deal had fallen through and City had stayed down that year, then even if they'd made it back to the Premier League, Mansour could quite easily have come along and gone, well, I'll look for somewhere else. And that, that I mean, that's the sliding doors moment. Mm. That's where it can all change. It is 100% a sliding doors moment. I don't think, I mean, obviously we, we think of this in very much, uh, uh, you know, just, just in City terms, and rightly so, that that, that game, and specifically Dickov's goal, Probably the most important moment in City's history for all the you know the great era that had gone like thirty years before or whatever, and for everything that's come since. That goal was pivotal in City being able to move on to playing in the in the top tier for the reason that, that Dave has just said. Um, <clears throat> who knows what would have happened without it? Maybe maybe they would have done what plenty of playoff final uh, losers do. Maybe they would have got promoted the next year. They might they might but, have won the league the next yeah. year. They might have won Division Two the next year. Gone up, done well in the first division and gone up again. But yeah, you, you never you never know for sure. And so that goal is absolutely pivotal. But what it did by that laying the groundwork, it sort of indirectly, but laying the groundwork for City to go on and be taken over. Um, when they did and everything that's come following City's takeover with financial fair play and, and, and all that stuff I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that that goal in that game has helped shape the course of football history in this country and then maybe a little bit wider because that investment in City 
I think, partly inspired the takeover of PSG um, because people saw the potential for that kind of investment from a country to, you know, almost politicising that investment. And City are crucial in that part of the evolution and the story of football. Um, and, I mean, I'm not saying the whole of football history swung on Dickov's goal, but it's, I think the, the wide, or the, the impact of, of that moment is so wide that it, it's almost hard to sort of taking or do justice to but just from City's point of view the most important goal in City's history without a shadow of a doubt the other side of it as well is like it's 10 years since Mansour took over City which means that the investment from I mean the investment came in nine years after they won that playoff and it feels like Mm -hmm. they're two very different eras but actually reasonably nine years isn't that long (laughs) yeah when you put it like that I mean those 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 two. There was a takeover in the middle of that as well. <laughs> yeah, those yeah. those those two city teams and those two city eras. I mean, it is to all intents and purposes, it's a different club, yeah. isn't it? The the only constant, uh, and without being too twee about it, the only constant in any of it is the fans. Mm. Chairman I mean, changed, stadium changed, yeah. players changed, kits changed, manufacturers changed, sponsors changed, everything <laughs> changed. I think one thing that that is for certain is that when you look at the key events of the past twenty, you know, the, the past ten years, and you break them down into moments, almost like dominoes. That moment at Wembley in 1999 is that big momentum that has toppled mm-hmm. the do- the dominoes, isn't it? If you like um, mm. to to get where they are now, and and you know for for more moments and events to happen. Well, they went up the next season in second place, and they were by far away not the second best team in the first division that mm. year. They kept winning games that that it was just momentum that that carried them through, and they they only had one kind of tough spell in that Division 1 year which was just the other side of Christmas they had about nine games where they where they won one yeah. in, a, in a, yeah. and they they got up back up to the Premier League pretty much on the back of winning that playoff final and you, I don't think any of us expected it to be that quick the recovery because you I mean I don't know if you remember the mood in uh, when they went down to the the second division yeah I do so that in terms of obviously like I said my, my first season ticket um, with my birthday being in July, I got my first season ticket for my 10th birthday, which set up for the Division 2 season. Before that, I mean, a good couple of years before that was when I really started taking an interest, sort of about when I was about eight or so. That's when I was excited to watch games on TV and when I wanted to read everything about City. So, yeah, I was very much aware of the, the mood around it. It's just to actually go and watch it live was a, a much more occasional thing before that point. So you guys were both there. What were you thinking at, at 2-0 down? Do you know, I have a very clear memory of, um, and I don't know why, but I had a very specific idea in my head because Bristol City had just come down and I remembered that Gota had played for them previously and and what was going (laughs) through my head at 2-0 was, we're going to be playing Bristol City. Hmm. We're going to be playing Bristol City and and, and Gota's going to play against them. And it was such a strange thought. It was like I couldn't focus on the magnitude of it all. I was just singling in on the idea of... But I've not seen us play Bristol City before, so at least we'll have that. <laughs> did, you, did you cry? Um, no, I, I've only cried once at City, um, and that was when we got relegated against Ipswich. I, I came, cried on that occasion. Yeah, I came very, very close uh, in 2012 when we were going into stoppage time at 2-1 down. I was extremely close to tears. Um, but other than that, no. I think the next time I cry might be if we win the Champions League. <laughs> I, was, I was in floods of tears at 2-0 down. Um, and my mum... Was looking at me, going, um, "It'll be, it'll be okay." You know, as mums do, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And then Hawlock scored, and um, she went, look, "Look, they've scored now, and you know they might get another one." And I, I knew she didn't believe it, and I didn't believe it. And all, all I could remember thinking was um, that selfish 
has just done that to make us think that we've got a bit of time, a mm. bit of a bit of hope. And yeah, and then Dickoff scored, and I I don't I honestly don't really remember it that well. What I remember of that is um, <clears throat> I remember. I was at that point, because everybody was stood up, I was stood on my chair. I mean, I'm not the tallest now. I was a very small 10-year-old. So to be able to see other people, I was stood on my chair. And as we scored, and I jumped, the chair folded in on me, and I panicked (laughs) because I'd I'd fallen through it. And then shortly shortly after, my mum was wiping away a tear. And being being very sensitive, I was like, Mum, are you crying because you're happy or are you sad? She was like, I'm happy, Richard. I'm happy. I was like, well, good, because why would you be sad? But... um, (laughs) Yeah, that that's my memory of the goal. Have I ever told you? I think my I think, view of Richard Burns has changed on one <laughs> moment. <now. laughs> um, do you know? I don't think I've told this story on the podcast about my dad's watch. I think you two might know this because you were there when he got to tell Dickov about this. You're I don't looking really blank. Remember? Yeah. Okay, so my dad has a watch that um, that he wore to Wembley for that game. And as he jumped up to sort of, as you do after a goal, punch the air and all the rest of it, and obviously that was particularly manic, as Dickoff scored it and my dad jumped up, his watch came off his wrist. And when it hit the floor, it stopped. And so he's got a goal, uh, sorry, he's got a watch that is stopped almost to the split second that Dickoff scored that goal and he's never had it fixed. And when we did the, the live podcast uh, three seasons ago, when we yeah, had Dickoff Dickoff was the guest. Yeah, and... Um, my dad, he, he couldn't help but tell him um, at the interval. He was like, Paul, I've got to tell you. He said, I'm sorry. And yeah, he used to have it. He had a, he had a, he used to have by his computer a framed picture that he'd taken at Wembley from where we were sat, obviously. Um, and the watch hung up next to it. He's never had it fixed. It's like the most unique souvenir, but it's it's super unique to him because anybody else would just look at that and think it's, it's a stopwatch. Watch. Yeah, but it's got the time on it. I, I yeah. love that. Um, were you ever tempted to, to leave early that day? I didn't have well. I didn't have any choice mm. in it because if my mum and dad wanted to leave early, we'd have left early. I wouldn't have been. I, I was the same age as Richard, so as a ten-year-old, I would not have stood there and gone, "No, mum, I'm staying. I'm staying here." <laughs> so, um, but my mum, my dad would have left. My dad would one hundred percent have left, and I'd have been up for leaving with him. Um, but my mum would will not ever leave a football match early. Um, her dad used. I think her dad used to do that when she was a kid, and she hated going in case things changed. And so there were times. I mean, there was there were times when I was up for leaving years later, and and she she steadfastly would not move from the seat. seat. Hmm. And there was like, like one year there were four nil down to Charlton with a couple of couple of minutes left, and we're like, yeah, should we go? And my mum's going, nope, no, we're not, we're not going to the final whistle. So she would one hundred. She would have killed me and my dad if we'd have if we'd have left that game early. And I, in hindsight, thankfully, so you know. Yeah, same for me. I'm. Um... I, I'm very much on uh, David's mum's side here. I won't leave games early. I've done it in, in 20 seasons. I've done it on three occasions um, where I just absolutely had to. There was sort of, I, I couldn't help it. It's not um, good enough, Richard. I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but for that one, I remember um, my dad used to have like a, just a little bag, like a little, a little shoulder bag that he used to um, like put the tickets in and stuff. And... He used to, to make sure it didn't get kicked away, he used to, uh, he had a clip on it, he used to clip it to the seat in front so he knew it wasn't going anywhere. And I have a very vivid memory of, um, as the second goal went in, he unclipped that and he turned to us and said, we're going on the final whistle. He said, we're not watching any celebrations, just straight out your seat. Um, and obviously, as it transpired... He changed his we, mind on that, didn't he? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't need to do that. But, um, and he's yeah. never clipped it to a chair since. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were 
ready to leave. We were we were making ready to to make a dart, but no, we we stayed for it all. We heard earlier the people that were were key during that game. David, you spoke to them all. How do they remember that game in that era? It's. I think it's the last City team that had... I'm, actually, no, I may be wrong on this, but I, I, I think it's before the Guardiola era, it's the last City team that had the sort of team spirit mm-hmm. that, you, that you see from those sorts of squads. Um, Guardiola's a different beast. You look at, at certainly uh, the last couple of seasons, the... The spirit in the camp has been has been huge. You what you see all the behind the scenes stuff, and there, there is a, a huge camaraderie with the squad. I don't think City have had that since that '99 squad. Every single one of those players kind of remembers it fondly and remembers it as a, a, a as a as one of the best eras of the career. And you, you look at actually the players that were in that team. That's that's probably the best moment of their career, um, being involved in something like that. Um, a couple of them went on to play for City in the Premier League. A couple of them went on to have. Um, uh, decent careers, kind of elsewhere, um, but as a unit, that was one. They they were they they were like an army squadron. They were they were all together and all kind of all, all kind of linked by this one one piece of of great history. And you, 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 I think the spirit that ran through the camp actually was probably one of the reasons why they won the game the way they did. Um, certainly from Christmas onwards in that ninety nine season, um, I think team spirit carried them a long way. When you look at that dark period of of Manchester City. How important is it that that, that is still with living memory for, for so many supporters? I think it confuses a lot of supporters, you know, because it's very easy. When City don't do well, you I mean, you look at Guardiola's first season, for instance, um, and it it went well as you would... Uh, it went kind of well because it, it put the foundations in for what Guardiola's achieved since. But... At the time, it felt like things were going badly and like Guardiola was failing in, in places. You think of that Everton 4-0, for instance, and you'd kind of look at it and think, right, we, he needs to stop this playing out from the back nonsense. And there were there were fans that were getting quite upset at, at what, he was, what he was doing. And I think the reason for that is because a lot of them fans can remember when it didn't work in the second division and when it didn't work in the first division, when they were going down from the Premier League back in 96. And I think that what it does is... It creates two very, very steadfast camps. You've got the camp who are going, well, this is fantastic. We've got Guardiola managing and, and Sergio Aguero. How can you be disappointed with this when 20 years ago you were watching City scrap in the second mm. division? It's I don't understand how anybody could ever complain about this. And you have the other side of it that go, well, you know, they spent £200 million. They should be better than this. And what it does is it kind of polarises mm. those, two, those two things. If the worst period in City's history was in the 1900s, you know, in, in like 1906... <coughs> None of us would remember it, and none of us would would care about it. But because a lot of us can remember it, it kind of it changes your perspective on where they are now. And I think it 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 makes it very difficult to form an actual objective assessment of mm. what they do these days because of of you, you can't help but compare it to what happened twenty years ago. So for both of you, having lived and witnessed that dark period, and and now obviously witnessing and being a big part of this this new successful period, where where do you stand? I'm my my first position on it is that I'm really grateful that I saw those days and that yeah I was only ten so obviously my understanding of a relegation to Division Two was maybe a little bit different to someone like my dad I suppose um, and an older generation but I saw some some rubbish at City and I have seen a relegation um, for obviously from the Premier League 
obviously it went very well the next season but my first five seasons and I suppose for you David it's a season more mm. my first five seasons as a season ticket holder I didn't see City playing the same league two Looking seasons up, running yeah. um, and I'm really grateful for that because it does give a context to what we see now um, what I don't like is as, as David sort of alluded to there and, and, and spoke about is this idea that we used to have Dickov, Michael Brown, Lee Crooks, Gerard Vikins, who were good players at a level, but not what we've got now. It doesn't mean that every time we lose a game now we should go, Oh well, we used to be in division two, think back to those days. No, you've you've got to your expectations have got to be set by what you've got. And what City have got now is the finest resources, the finest training pitch in the world. Um, almost incomparable to most other clubs and so our demand should be set accordingly it doesn't mean we should expect to win the league every year because that isn't how it works but we should expect good play um, and we should we should sort of hold the club to account on that. We, and, that's, we, and that's also not to say that it's not okay to lose. Because exactly. Because it's fine because to lose in exactly. certain situations. You, you can lose and, it, and you're not going to go through an entire season unbeaten. Exactly. But, it's okay to be disappointed with the loss. Yeah, it's, and yeah. it's okay when we get beat and if um, this is a bad example because it very rarely happens. But if David Silva has a bad game and City have got beat, it's okay to say City weren't good today. And I think David Silva wasn't on it, which contributed. And that doesn't mean that you're saying David Silva's terrible. And I'd I'm, rather I'm Michael Brown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm ungrateful now, or I I demand the world. That's not what it is. But it's okay game by game to analyse a game almost objectively, or well, not objectively. It's always going to be subjective and passionate, isn't it? But to to be able to step back and say this great player who's better than anything we've had in our history before didn't have a good game today. But like Mooney says, that kind of conversation polarises people because they think that where we are now should put the club beyond criticism, but it it doesn't. It's OK to say when they get things wrong. But I, I almost feel sorry for, for supporters. Uh, you know, there's a good generation and a half now of fans who don't remember a relegation. And I do think that does give us a different context to how you feel about things. Not in a bad way. You can only, you know, you can only experience what you've experienced, but it, there is something different about it, I think. I think in the next 20 years as well, that will be even more mm. more evident, won't it? Those, when, when, when we wheel out the 40-year special yeah, for, yeah, uh, for this game. <laughs> <laughs> when we're into the, uh, the the 30th year of the Blooming Podcast. And, yeah. Um, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for, for this 1999 special. It is rather hard to believe that it is 20 years, but what a 20 years they have been. And I know we laugh and joke about it, but bring on the next 20 years. I'm sure we won't be seeing many relegations. Thank you very much to my two guests today, Richard Burns. Thank you very much, been a pleasure. And David Mooney. Thank you, Sam. was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast